Welcome to Game Over Montreal and uh, Game Over Indeed. It's a very familiar situation we find ourselves in, and I'm not going to bother with much of an intro. We're going to welcome in our two guests, Jack Frazier, a.k.a. J Fresh Hockey, and Nicolas Cloutier. How's it going, guys? Streak. I, I think that, you know, with how comp- competitive their division is, they've had every reason to get down on themselves and, and stop trying. And I think that this game was a perfect example of a team not doing that, of a team sticking to the plan and playing hard and, and getting rewarded for it, not only from their top players, but from the guys at the bottom of the lineup. So I'm in a great mood. Uh, sorry to, that it's at your guys' expense, but uh, you know, it really was kind of a story of two teams who are at least in superficially similar situations in terms of recent performance, yeah. I think responding to those in completely opposite ways. Yeah, you could tell like the uh, the underlying issues with uh, or the underlying numbers, the underlying play with Pittsburgh was strong, whereas with the Montreal Canadiens, mm-hmm. I think there's been periods of, the, of time where they've played all right, but overall it's very middling at best. And this, I, w- I was wondering over the last stretch, the last couple of weeks here, whether the uptick in the Canadians' underlying numbers and their like better play was going to hold out and they were going to rebound a little bit or if it was going to be a situation where things would go their way, like go against them so long that they would start to think like maybe what we're doing isn't working anyway. And the bad habits would creep back in. And it seems like that's, what's going to happen because man, it is, it is not looking pretty. It's really, really yeah. rough. And I will say there's one play that is consistently standing out to me with the Montreal Canadians this year. And it's the play that created the third penguins goal where they're on the rush and it's usually a defenseman carrying the puck wide. And then there's two or even three Montreal Canadians forwards lined up essentially parallel across the goal line. And then the defenseman char- fires a sharp angle shot at the goaltender, hoping for a rebound or something. Yep. And it ends up causing an odd man rush the other way. And I swear to God, if I was the coach, I would look all these guys in the eye and say, the next person who does that goddamn play is going on waivers tomorrow morning because it's the dumbest shit I've ever seen in this league. And they do it like three or four times every game. And I just don't understand how there's so little creativity that they're just like, I don't know, let's just all go in a straight line and try to just whip it at the goaltender from a sharp angle. You know, it's not... I mean, it's not normal that you see Norlinder who... Wasn't even playing good hockey in Laval, and he just comes uh, in this lineup for his first NHL game, and he's basically one of your best or your best defensemen on the ice, and he's the only one actually making plays in the offensive zone. Uh, Romanov made uh, another play too that set up a one-timer that was pretty sweet, but you don't even see defensemen creating anything uh, outside of just like pointless point shots that don't mean anything. So, yeah, you, you don't in, you don't see any movement from the blue line. You don't see anything and when they're when the defensemen are in their zone they're even like they're even they're even worse because if i think like uh, right now the canadians have allowed even more goals than the Arizona coyotes uh, they pretty like they pretty much look like the worst defense in the league right now even if uh, the coyotes have like two games in hand well they're actively thinking and the abs are trying to make the playoffs so yeah and yeah. the fact is like the coyotes have what eight first and second round picks combined this year. Yeah. Like, they have a plan. The Canadians, one of their picks could be up in the air to Carolina, right? So or not Carolina, yeah. to Phoenix or Arizona. Yeah. Well, I, and I think like you kind of get what you pay for with this blue line where I don't think anybody would look at this group of defensemen and say that they are abounding with creativity or puck moving skill. And sure, that, sure enough is, is what we're seeing. And I think we've seen early on Petrie, I think taxing himself with putting on too much of a, a load on his own shoulders That's when it comes to moving That's the puck true. and it's leading him to forcing plays and making mistakes, which is leading to a lot of the frustration that he's experienced. Uh, and then, you know, you have other guys like Sherrod or like Savard, where even if there are certain areas in the game where they bring something, it's certainly not in terms of offense, there's no creativity. So it's, it's not surprising at all to see 
a guy like Norlander come into the mix and then, you know, have him kind of bringing an element that they're not. And you yeah. know, I have to be very nice at Norlander because I know that a friend of the show, Jack Hahn is uh, obsessively high on him. Oh yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, this Habs group, like that, that example of kind of the playoff, the rush where the defenseman leads the charge and then it, it causes an odd man rush the other way. That's just such a kind of shallow facsimile of what they were doing that led to so much of their success in previous seasons uh, or, or, you know, in the playoffs last year where the rush game was really what was uh, being kind of the core of their success. And, and now, you know, the rush defense has been a huge issue. We saw, we saw it get completely blown up uh, yep. against the Bengals tonight. And uh, you know, that's, that's kind of a tough thing to turn around. And, and if they don't have that, like that was really what was the Habs had going for them in the playoffs. And if, if that's not going, then, I don't really see how they could expect to see much success for the rest of the year. Yeah, yeah that, that's been a season-long issue, the rush defense. And that's part of, I think, why David Savard has stood out so poorly is because it's an area that he struggles at. Like, if he has to turn, he gets blown by. You know, like, he, he becomes a turnstile, unfortunately. Like, I don't know if he needs to start keeping a much wider gap so that he doesn't do that, but so far this season, he's really struggled to keep up off the rush. And the Canadians in general, their organization in defending the rush has just been non-existent. Yep. And I think Jack has, uh, has put a finger on the problem too. Uh, all the burden uh, on cre of creating offense is on Jeff Petrie right now. See, So he has to do too much and he has all the pressure on him. So he ends up doing... Uh, he, he ends up making turnovers. He ends up being not efficient in the offensive zone. And that's a real issue for the Habs. Uh, even when Edmondson comes back, a lot of a, a lot of problems remain. And I don't know how they figure it out, but uh, they pretty much have to blow over this entire squad uh, during the summer or just, uh, I mean, something has to give because this makeup of this blue line is just not doing it right now. And I know I, I've seen a lot of comments, uh, uh, a lot of people arping on Jasham and on the, on the systems and everything. I've seen some mistakes that you cannot even do at the junior level tonight. So it doesn't have anything to do with the system. Uh, I'm sorry to say that. I, I know Jasham is the other, and I'm not even going to say he's being a good coach this year. His coaching has been pretty... Uh, I'm pretty skeptical of some of his coaching this year. Uh, mo mostly how he uh, he uses youngsters, like uh, the the time uh, the time uh, he um, he gave to Caulfield tonight and and uh, Norlander. Uh, I have some issues with, but overall, I mean, it's not a system issue. I mean, I don't know because then you read comments like, did you see in what Eric Engels wrote the other day, and he was talking. I guess it was yesterday or maybe even this morning. And it was like a media availability with Ducharme. And he was talking about how they've had so much struggle getting the puck off the wall. And I don't know if he mm -hmm. was being sarcastic because I didn't watch the interview or anything. But he said that like he wishes that they had a system for what would they would do once they got the puck off the wall. But they don't. And it's like, are you just like saying that you don't have any plan for once they get the puck? Yeah, I can't, I can't <laughs> believe that an NHL coach doesn't have a system for that. So... Probably misunderstanding because I, I just cannot believe it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think in a lot of cases you see with new coaches that come in, you know, they don't get the chance to implement their systems right away. Yeah. Uh, you know, you saw that, you know, the, a big example for the Penguins that you'd hear a lot about was when Bilesma came in in 2009 uh, after uh, Tefano was fired, where he essentially was coaching Terrian's system for the entire rest of that season and the playoffs. And then it was not until the next season where he was able to implement no. his own thing that he had going. And I think it's, it's pretty evident based on what the Habs results looked like for the remainder of the last regular season uh, and in the playoffs. And, and that goes for the microstats as well, that they were playing pretty much Claude Julian hockey yeah. down the stretch and in the playoffs. And so, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of underlying numbers shift for them, especially like we've been alluding to constantly that, that rush play falling apart essentially both ends of the ice, mostly defensively, uh, that would indicate that, you know, this is the opportunity that Dominic Ducharme has had to implement his system. And so far the results, I think, kind of speak for themselves. So, you know, he's, they, I think they have him for a couple more years. I, I don't think he's, you know, I, I think they're kind of stuck with him for a while at, at least. So it might be that he has the opportunity to keep that system going for a little while longer and, and maybe they start to see results. But I, I think that there is, 
fair room for people to be a little skeptical about what Dominic Ducharme has brought to the table in sure. terms of tactics, uh, even sure. setting aside, obviously, kind of the miracle playoff run. I mean, you can be skeptical, but the thing I'm saying is you can change a coach right now, and I don't even, I don't even think you, you'll see a huge difference in, in terms of results because no. this, this, blue line, this blue line isn't fit to win games right now. Yeah. So, I mean, you can change the coach, but it will not amount to anything. So, I don't know. I, I, I think I would give, like, Sham a bigger leash, uh, try to see what's going on. Uh, the thing is, uh, if you're going to change GM, well, that's going to be something to, to, to consider as far as a coaching change. Maybe the new GM will want to bring his guy. Yeah, I don't see any point of moving out Ducharme this season because yeah. I think the obvious... Uh, choice right now is a new GM going into next year. And yeah, I really am. I'm very shocked, honestly, that there's been no talk really about that in mainstream media. Like there's been speculation, about like, Oh, does he want to come back here? Is he wanting to have like longer term or like, are the Canadians looking elsewhere, but you don't really see any pressure on it. And I know part of that is because of, the miracle playoff run last year, but like we have to be honest here about what's gone on with the Canadians over the last several seasons. And if not for COVID allowing a 24th place team in to upset the penguins two years ago, and if not for COVID allowing them to play in the North division last year, we're looking at a team that's basically a non-playoff team five years in a row, which I believe has never happened before Montreal Canadians franchise history. So like a couple asterisks away from that. So yes, we can look at that 20 something game stretch in the playoffs last year and say, wow, wasn't that wonderful? And it was, but it also was an incredibly lucky streak where, you know, Carey price was saving 97% of the shots on the PK, you know, like, yeah, but you actually look at their play during that Stanley cup run. They played some good hockey. Yeah, they play. And they you look at how they're playing right now, it, and it's god awful hockey. I mean, I've seen some bad hockey from the Abs in the last few years. This is not even close to that. What we saw tonight, I mean, this this is a, just a defensive wreck. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no arguments there. I think that they massively outplayed the Jets last year in the playoffs, which was yeah. partly because the Jets are not like they weren't a good team at all. And I thought they played the Golden Knights the Golden relatively Knights. evenly. Yeah, yeah. But they definitely got pretty lucky against the Maple Leafs, and then they got caved completely by the Tampa Bay Lightning. So, like, yeah. was it just that they had a good matchup against the Golden Knights, who were a team that loved to shoot from the perimeter and didn't really drive the middle at all, and that catered well to the Montreal Canadiens' system, and the Jets are just not good, and they got lucky against the Leafs? Like, you know, it's just a couple of nice things that happen in a short period of time. And it throws the perception of the team completely out of whack from what they actually are. And then, you know, you can't really underestimate the loss of Price to know Weber as, you know, oh, possibly yeah. like Absolutely. three of their five most important players last season. Tanev, or not Tanev, but Tatar. Going to throw in Tatar. Well, he Tatar? wasn't in the playoffs, right? But as, yes, as the, losing analy- Tatar, as the analytics guy here, I have to throw a Tatar in. Without Tatar, yeah, I know, I know what, I know what Yeah, sure. Uh, well, I, I I do think they replaced Tatar uh, quite well with Mike Kaufman, even though analytically at five on five, I know Tatar is really is really a, a play driver five on five, and you cannot like quite say the same of Hoffman. But actually, Hoffman hasn't been that bad on both ends of the ice this year, I think. But anyway, I think the the the, the real player they miss is Philip Deneau, and we pretty much. I, I will not we, but Bergevin underestimated like how valuable he was to this team and overrated, quite frankly, Christian Dvorak. Uh, it's getting pretty clear. Yeah, well, the thing with Dano is that I don't think anybody underrated him defensively. Yeah, I think people had a pretty good sense of how important he was yeah. to shut down center, especially in the playoffs where, you know, you talk about the matchup with uh, the Knights being beneficial. You know, that matchup with the Gold Knights is not beneficial if not for Philip Dano shutting down Mark Stone. Uh, you know, that's really what it ended up coming down to. Uh, but I think where people did under it, underestimate Philip Dano and Thomas Tatar, could I have to get that in there? is offensively, you know, how much they lost at five on five offensively by losing those two players, because Deno, I think because he didn't 
score points on the power play and because he didn't get goals, I think people shoehorned him into a pure defensive player, uh, which, you know, the 515 numbers for years have been suggesting that his playmaking skill was underrated offensively, that his defensive abilities directly translated into offensive chances, especially off the rush, uh, and that he had enough chemistry with Tatar and Gallagher when that line wasn't being deployed as a defensive only shutdown line in the playoffs, which is why Tatar didn't necessarily work uh, in those situations. But, you know, I mean, this was a line, again, since Tatar came to the Habs, that line was the best five on five line in the NHL in terms of goals. And they lost two halves or they lost two thirds of it. And I don't think it's very surprising that they now find themselves in a situation where they're having the same kinds of, you know, goals above expected and goals against above expected problems that they've had in the past, but without the same five on five results. And And the the Habs entire thing was, okay, our power play stinks. Our special teams stink. Our goaltending isn't that great. But at least at five on five, we can maybe drive play yeah, enough yeah, that we can yeah, sneak our way to playoffs. And if you don't have the five on five offense, then that whole plan falls apart, and that is essentially what's happened so far this season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, you, yeah. Go ahead, Nicola. But uh, actually, one of yeah, you well, guys, uh, we're getting some comments on the stream that there's like some TV noise in the background. So if anybody has a TV on, just hit the uh, mute button have a there for us. Yeah, that is me. I th- there are some people in my apartment. I'm just going to mute whenever I'm not talking. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. So yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely the biggest problem that they have is that that biggest strength is gone, and I think that's why you have to give Ducharme a little bit of the benefit of the benefit of the doubt, right? It's yeah. like Claude Julien did have that line that he could roll out at any time, and Claude Julien is a legitimately excellent five on five coach. I think where the Ducharme, like, uh, what do you want to call it? Like glass half full attitude drops is the fact that the special teams are still an embarrassment <laughs> after how many seasons, right? Like, and they've replaced coaches there like multiple times now, like at a certain point to me, it comes in like organizationally, they don't value the right things to produce good numbers on those special teams. So like the PK has been decent at times when goaltenders are making all the saves for them, but the power play has just, it hasn't been good in like I think someone said the last time they had a ten t- top ten power play was like oh eight. Yeah, uh, you mean the Kovalev years? Yeah. Oh yeah, that year with the Carbono when they finished uh, first in the league and first in scoring. Yes, that was uh, that was uh, fun times. Yeah. Yeah, that was back when Kirk Muller was a good power play coach as a, and oh, you know, yeah. the point shots were actually the, the go-to thing around the NHL, but unfortunately, well, the Canadians... yeah, yeah, they had the Streit and Markov uh, on the point. Yep. Yeah. And so before that, it was Markov and Sore. And after that, it was Markov and Subban. <laughs> Markov, yeah, definitely a key like, player. Yeah. That doesn't work anymore in the NHL. Goalies are too good as a thing. When they can see the shot, they're pretty much going to stop it. And yeah. I think it was understandable for them to think, okay, well, we got Hoffman, we have Dvorak who can be the bumper, uh, yeah. we have Caulfield. You know, I, I understand why they thought that they would be better on the power play just because of those personnel changes. And maybe the fact that those personnel changes haven't worked is a good sign that there is legitimate coaching stuff going on. Because if you keep moving the people around and they have tried basically everybody on the power play for the past couple of years and nothing is working, then I think that Even that's a pretty good sign. That something is just wrong under the hood and should be changed. And it, the thing is, like, even even if it's not a systemic thing exactly, there does come a point where you do just have to completely shake things up and and just try something new, uh, just because whatever is going on right now obviously isn't working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, I think you could say that, we could say that about the power play and the penalty kill and pretty much everything right now with, yeah. with the yeah, team. Well, unfortunately. Uh, let's talk about yeah, some positives if we can. Good at. The positives are, well, it would be Cole Caulfield, certainly. I yeah. mean, I was skeptical, and I think you were too when I heard like uh, that he was recalled today. Because I was like, man, I mean, the, the whole point of that was the, the development, letting him find his groove. And he was just starting to find his groove in Laval and getting more confidence. So just let that process go on. So they recall him, and I was like, oh, my gosh, if they do recall him and play, uh, play him on uh, the third line, I will just completely lose it. And that would be so abs to do it. But no, no, they gave him a, a good opportunity. But the thing is, when he was just starting to uh, to get chances, starting to be really involved in the Ozone, well, I don't know why Duchamp didn't up his ice time. I think he finished with what, like 15 minutes of play? 
Yeah, he, he played 15 minutes, and there are people some, in the comments minutes. here saying he was a minus three. Yeah, he had some issues defensively tonight. Like, there's well, no yeah, question sure, about it. But, like, at this point, what you're looking for with Caulfield, like, yes, there's defensive issues. There's going to be defensive issues. That's going to be a long-term thing to work on. Absolutely. You want him to have confidence with the puck, and he had confidence with the puck tonight. Yeah. He tried a lot of stuff. Didn't work, obviously, because nothing worked for them, but he got some chances, and that wasn't happening earlier in the year. I thought that it was a positive step for, step for him, and I thought Norlander is like, he didn't have an amazing game, but seeing a defense no, no. carry the puck and create something out of it was a new thing for this team. Norlander's really funny to me because he, I've talked to him a couple of times on the phone. He's really kind of a, like a space cadet, really lunatic kind of guy. And uh, you, you see him defensively and it's like his pants could be on fire and he would not even panic. He, he has no sense of urgency. He's like the entire Romanov. Romanov's like too involved. He's just too chill. Like he's just out there. Oh, the puck is there. And sometimes like there, there were miscommunications because like the puck was his to take and he was waiting for his partner to come pick it up. So that, he, uh, he kind of makes me laugh in this way, but it helps him offensively because he has so much poise. He waits that extra second to make a play. Uh, which nobody does uh, on the abs blue, uh, blue line, which I find great. Uh, offensively, he really has a lot to give. But yeah, there's there are some big issues defensively, but we knew he was not NHL ready in the defensive side of the game before uh, before he played. So uh, that's going to be something he's going to work on. He's going to still, uh, he's going to keep working on it in Sweden, uh, I believe, uh, very, uh, very soon. You think he's going yeah. back to Sweden? Uh, I do think that, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's a, you know, back to, to Caulfield, you know, his defensive metrics have not been good at any point. Uh, you know, even, even last season at the beginning of this season. Uh, and, and that's fine. I mean, you know, like you said, that's, that's just growing pains. That's just stuff that he's going to work on. The issue for him at the beginning of this season was that those scoring chances remain tight that were there the previous year and then the playoffs weren't there at all. He was shooting completely from the perimeter. He wasn't getting the inside yes, chances. Exactly. And that's not yep. what you want from, from Coffin because as good as his shot is, he's not going to be able to beat NHL goalies from, you know, the outside with the consistency that he did in college. So that I think is the entire focus. You know, I, I, he's minus three. Look at this point in the half season, I don't think that a lot of us have any big illusions of them mounting this massive comeback and making no. a push to the playoffs. And frankly, it was, you know, even thinking before the season started that they were going to be a lot better than they've shown so far. It was always a, a big outside chance that they were going to make the playoffs to begin with. So I think we're at the point now where, like you said, if they're willing to just give Caulfield ice time, give him even power play well, time, yeah. let him do what he's going to do, then I, I think that that's a lot different than at the beginning of the season where clearly the Habs thought that they were going to be making a serious playoff push and, and even contending. I think now that it's clear that that's not going to be on the table unless everything kind of rolls right all of a sudden, I think just hand him the keys, figure out what he can do, try him with different yeah. players. And, and at least and in this game, you know, obviously the, the only highlight from the Habs that you really saw all night was him putting the puck between his legs. And, and I am, philosophically opposed to him doing that to Chad Ruedel, who's one of my favorites, but uh, at least it was one Habs player that was kind of fun to watch tonight. So honestly, just for the sake of the fan base, just keep him in and put him on the top six. Chad Ruedel is like a top 10 Pittsburgh made up name guy. (laughs) Also a top 10 uh, expected goals for percentage guy. Is he? Yeah. Good for him. Yes, sir. I didn't know that. I knew he was all right. Yeah. You see, that's that's my my whole issue with it, though. Could, people are saying, oh, yeah, maybe Caulfield didn't get that much ice time because he had some issues defensively. Well, why recall him then if he's going to have some issues and that justifies like, not playing him? Just keep him in Laval and give him ice time. If you're going to call him up, just live with the mistakes and just start to see the season from a develop, the development perspective. Because otherwise, I, I have issues with calling him up if you're going to give him like a, a 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what you have to look at the rest of the season as, right? If like there's 63 more games, which sounds ridiculous considering how oh, the first 19 <laughs> have gone. Like it, it's hard to imagine there's 63 more games to watch of this team. But 
the only way that they can salvage this from an entertainment standpoint, from a interest standpoint, is if they let the kids play and try to figure things out. I think one thing that I would be looking at for them right now is like they you being this bad gives you some certain advantages, right? Like Jeff yep. Petrie. Guy's clearly hurt still. You know, he's he's struggling oh, yeah. with the mental aspect of the game as well. It looks like to me uh with the pressure on him let him sit for a week you know yeah. heal up sure. same with brandon gallagher he's frustrated because things aren't going well but also he's also pretty hurt like you can tell in his skating stride he doesn't have that pep in his step he's getting better sit him for a little bit probably a hard conversation for both of them both of them are well yeah assistant that's captains, but like that's play. what your job is as the coach is to have sure. hard conversations so tell them sure rest we're not playing for anything here we're gonna play the young kids your roster spot is guaranteed anyway come back Mm -hmm. when you're fully healthy and they have to think both like long term with both those guys too because they've signed them again right it's not just about this year if you want gallagher to make money or not make money for you but make game for you on that contract you got to make sure that he's not bled dry by the time this season ends Sure enough, but these guys want to play. That's like in their uh, DNA. I don't know how you can sell this to them, frankly. Don't give them a choice. Or at least not at this point. You know, like, like, like you said, there's 63 games left to go. You know, I think that considering the expectations this team had going in, I can't imagine that they'd be too psyched about completely throwing in the towel on November 19th. Uh, you know, I think that those are definitely conversations that will probably take place at some later point in the season. It wouldn't be surprised me to see guys like that go on LTIR. But uh, okay. yeah, I think for the time being, it really is going to have to be kind of a, you know, the, the experimental stuff from the coaching perspective is going to have to be more kind of the young kids or maybe a shakeup in the system or the power play or the lines and stuff like that, rather than those kind of big, you know, franchise shifting, throw in the towel and go for the pick type of situation. Yeah, but, you're right. But, uh, again, who knows? I mean, more games like this, uh, that process could speed itself up. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, th- I keep on saying, like, how many more games like this before something actually happens? And then there's just more games like this and more games like this and more games like this. And for to be fair, they had a stretch there where things were still going poorly, but the play on the ice was not so bad. But Mm -hmm. the last couple games here, it's just gone completely off the rails. And it just seems like a lot of times players are just going cowboy and they're not following instructions and they're frustrated. It's it's a sad state of affairs, 19 games in. But, you know, I know there's a lot of people who want to wait until like carry prices back before they make any crazy decisions. But (laughs) the worst case scenario right now is that carry price comes back fully healthy mentally and physically and puts on a heart trophy season and takes them out you know, of the lottery pick range. That, like we talked about it before the the start of the, uh, the the broadcast, but that would be so abs. Like for Price to come back, and if they don't get that top ten pick, they get Carolina's pick, and Carolina's just killing it this year. So they would get such a lousy pick, and that would be so abs. That would be so has fashion. And I something in me tells me this is just going to happen, and you just have to brace for it. I think just the whole philosophy behind the Dvorak acquisition, I understand why they did it, but I think that they thought they were getting a player that they did not get. I think they thought they were getting a guy who would move the needle. Sorry, some conversation going on. Uh, I, thought they, I think they thought they were going to get a guy who was going to really move the needle, and I think Dvorak, as much as I think he's a good player, he's certainly not that. And uh, yeah, first round pick yeah. for him. I, I think this was a situation they should have at least seen coming. I, I think, you know, any analytical projection model had to have finishing in that kind of 10 to 15 range. Obviously, that's not where they're looking right now. I, I just think it was a sign of kind of larger strategic deficiency and like you've like alluded to an overreaction to that last year playoff run uh, and, and other recent consequences of it. So it wouldn't surprise me to see some kind of late season winning streak, but at the very least, we can assure has that the underlying numbers do not suggest that that is incoming. It would take this is not a regression of a mean situation. It would take a genuine shift in their quality of play to yeah. get that in action. So I wouldn't worry about it too much. But you know, Carey Price being Carey Price, maybe he maybe he gets through Dowdy syndrome, sees the Olympics coming up, and snaps into gear. So maybe be a little worried about that. 
the thing is they do play differently when price is in the game too so that's what they can kind of worry about but yeah well, well we were talking about the positives andrew and i i wonder like you guys are too like an analytically inclined uh, uh, person and i wonder like analytically like how is uh Romanov been uh, looking in these last few games because just according to the eye test I thought Romanov is coming on and, and he's playing better and better but I don't know how, how it shakes out with the, the numbers I haven't looked at like the last few games necessarily but I don't think he's necessarily stood out in a positive way but he has been doing the things that he's good at better mm -hmm. than normal so like he has a bit more yeah. confidence in his game He's lining up the big hits a lot, which I guess, like, if that's what you bring, that's what you bring. But I, I feel like the thing with Romanov this year is that the last time I looked at it, pretty much all the Canadians' defense pairings were about the same defensively. Like, nobody was standing out as, like, significantly worse. But that's yep. not a good thing because they've all been bad. <laughs> it's just... It, so it's, like, damning with faint praise that he's not sticking out in a bad way. I think the biggest thing with Romanov is that he's the death of offense, right? Because he does the exact same thing every single time. If he gets the puck in the offensive zone, he might do a little shimmy, shimmy shake, but he's just going to fire yeah. it on net. And oftentimes it's missing short side or, or far side, even worse, and coming out yeah. the other end. And he doesn't seem to have the awareness for when his partner is pinched to do that far side shot. And oftentimes he ends up being on like the bad end of a two-on-one because of his own bad shot. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And Paling hasn't done like really much better too. He's got only 10 minutes of ice time tonight, which I find pretty worrying. Uh, I thought he was good in the first few games when they called him up. Uh, he had some speed on the fourth check. He was doing some good things, but uh, you're not really seeing that uh, right now. Well, he, he doesn't have any ice time to show for, so. Yeah, and back on Christian Dvorak, I feel like at the beginning of the year, he actually had some like pretty solid defensive numbers. So the lack of offense was like kind of acceptable. And you saw like what the Canadians see in him is very much a safe middle six guy, right? And I think that's why yeah. they targeted him so heav heavily is they like that kind of player who just doesn't hurt yeah. you defensively and maybe chips in a little bit of offense, but the offense hasn't been there in the last couple weeks or several weeks, maybe even month, the defense is cratered as well. I think he's actually the worst center on the team and expected goals for percentage. And he's mm -hmm. not playing the tough minutes like Suzuki's still taking those. So yeah. we, we talked uh, when Jack Hahn was on last time about how he needs a playmaker and Jonathan Drouin really does help out that line but quite significantly. Yeah. But they also, like, they haven't been producing since Duran's been back either. I think Duran is clearly the best player on that line. And I think yes. in speaking about positives, there's a change in his game this season that I've noticed yeah. is oftentimes where in recent seasons, he would just kind of like throw a puck to the middle and hope that a player was there. He'll like hesitate yeah. a little bit and then drive the net. And that's new for Jonathan Duran. Like, I haven't seen that yeah. since like his rookie year in Tampa Bay. You're right. Yeah, I really like his play this year, and he set up uh, Dvorak pretty well. Well, in fact, I think they. Well, you 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 uh, you said that Dvorak needs a playmaker. I think his teammates set him up well uh, a few times since the beginning of the season, but he always shoots it in the in the chest of the goaltender. So or no thirty dice. feet wide. <laughs> yep. Yep. Pretty much. Yeah, I mean, Dvorak's whole thing was supposed to be efficiency, right? That was the and goal scoring. You know, whenever they'd bring up the graphics of like Dvorak versus Dano, they'd always bring up that here's the goals that Dano scored, here's the goals that Dvorak scored. That was supposed to be kind of the, the area where, you know, they would like all the arguments was that, oh, like you're only giving away a little bit defensively, but here's all the offense that you're getting in return. And I think that that really, that and kind of the price that they paid for really set an unrealistic expectation of what kind of player Dvorak was and what he was going to bring. Uh, I just, you know, brought up the uh, the Romanov numbers kind of, this is over the whole season so far, but I think it yep. does match up with, with a lot of what we've seen where the offensive numbers have really kind of dropped and not over the course of this season, but compared to last year. Uh, the defense is up a little bit, but still not mm -hmm. in a very good spot. But I think yep. that, that partially speaks to kind of larger issues with the Habs, but also you know, I, I think Romanov maybe, you know, his, his aggressive tendencies were maybe a little bit more forgivable last season when the Habs had a little bit more structure defensively. 
Yes. Uh, and, and they were able to create a lot more offense. Uh, in this case, I think that, that those aggressive plays really just aren't leading to anything whatsoever. Uh, and, and that's really kind of killing the impact that he can have on this team offensively. So not super encouraging, obviously, but, uh, uh, you know, and, and a broader thing I think that's worth noticing is if you look at kind of the players, uh, their defensive metrics, you know, you look at the guys who are kind of in that, you know, everything is happening area where they're getting offensive chances, but not defensive ones. Uh, you know, you're seeing guys like Brendan Gallagher and Christian Dvorak and Josh Anderson, you know, players who you would have at least have theoretically expected wouldn't be in that spot. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that that, again, speaks to not only the impact of the loss of Dano and, and to a lesser extent, Tatar, but also kind of the way that the bottom has kind of fallen out on this team defensively uh, in a way that's kind of destroyed what they've been able to do at five on five. Yeah, And speaking of uh, falling out defensively, uh, I'm going to ask you in a second about Jeff Petrie. But before I do, I have to take advantage of uh, promoting. We've got some game over merch that you can check out at sdpn.ca and download the SDPN app. And uh, make sure that if you're enjoying this show, we're not only on YouTube. If you can't tune in on YouTube, if you don't want to watch the video, you can find the podcast on pretty much any platform you can think of. And uh, you can find all those at sdpn.ca. Just click on the game over icon and find it all. But yeah, Jay Fresh, you've been doing these uh, amazing graphics all season long about essentially like showing uh, how players have changed over like the previous two years to like including this year in the data and like how their metrics change in percentiles or however, how bad does Jeff Petrie look <laughs> compared <laughs> to his last couple of years? Cause like I've been pushing Jeff Petrie and deservedly over the last three years as the Canadians, number one defenseman. But I don't know if it's a combination of age or injury or the pressure or whatever, what have you things have not been working out for him this year. And I know that, Part of the issue is that his shots are completely wild this year. I think uh, Mike mm-hmm. Johnson was mentioning that only 25% of his attempts are getting through, which is nuts. Very, yeah. very low. But there's there's more to it as well. How does it look like, uh, like on different metrics scaled when you include this season? Because it can't be pretty. Yeah, so the idea behind, behind that visualization, just to, to give a, a quick kind of explanation of what's going on is that you take last year's kind of numbers in all these different areas and then because these are kind of these are regression metrics that means that you know there's a lot of variables at play because you're trying to isolate the player's individual impact on stuff which means if you're just going based on the first couple games of the season it's just all noise you're not getting anything that's actually a signal but if you combine the you know if you take all the games from the calendar year of 2021 and you compare those to last seasons, then you can at least get some kind of signal about how things have shifted. You know, it's not necessarily perfect. There might be other factors at play, but at least you're kind of getting a roadmap that's giving you a little bit more accuracy. And in the case of Jeff Petrie, I think that overall things generally align with what the eye test would say and also what the conversations have been about. Uh, the offensive numbers are down. The defensive numbers are down. The power play numbers are somehow down. The penalty kill numbers are somehow down. Uh, and obviously, you know, again, you mentioned the shooting. I think that missing the net and stuff like that, that's obviously not something that we're necessarily super used to from him. But again, I feel like last year really set expectations a little high where you had the, the Jeff Petrie, the regular Jeff Petrie, the play driving, you know, offense generating Jeff Petrie combined with scoring a bunch of goals. Yes. And if there's one thing that's kind of the gospel of how you're evaluating defensemen, Literally, the least reliable thing you could possibly count on is a defenseman shooting percentage staying high. We're seeing it this yeah. year with Darnell Nurse. We're seeing it with Jacob Chikrin. Mm-hmm. And Jeff Petrie is just one more example. And, you know, Petrie, I think, is also in a situation where I think his on-ice shooting percentage is around 5%, which mm-hmm. is not, which is, you know, I think unsustainably low, but also something that's really contributing to those super low point totals. And, again, how bad he has been on the power play is also a part of that not letting him off the hook by any means. Uh, I think he's, he's undeniably struggled. I don't know if he has struggled to the extent that people who are mostly looking at the point totals might think that he has, but like you said, you know, the numbers are what they are. You add in the interpretation on top of that. I think that everything that you alluded to is probably a part of it. Him being the only real puck mover on this blue line is causing him to make a whole lot of plays that I don't think he otherwise would feel the need to. And it's leading to a lot of mistakes uh, there's the injury issues, obviously. And I mean, the guy is what? He's 32, 33 years old now. Something it's that, that time, range. right? 
it is yeah. around that time where especially, you know, not only for just a defenseman regularly when you're getting that hitch, but if you're a defenseman who is feeling the need to make more aggressive plays than you did in the past, that is just a lethal combination for everything going mm-hmm. on. So again, there's a level to which you blame things on Jeff Petrie personally. There's a level to which you use that interpretation to add external factors. But I mean, whatever it is, he was supposed to be the number one defenseman on this team. He was the reason that they were supposed to be able to weather Shea Weber with only David Savard kind of taking some of the defensive responsibilities. And obviously that hasn't panned out. So I, I think that that's a, a big reason that the Habs have struggled this year. And, and I think he's worthy of the scrutiny that he's getting. Yeah, a good comment actually here, a good observation from Andy Carden stuff on the YouTube chat here, saying that Petrie's a perfect example of a defenseman scared to play like he he's used to out of fear and lack of confidence that his goalies will make will not make the save if he pinches or rushes for offense. Petrie is a guy who loves to join in on the rush, and you're right that that hasn't really been something that he's done this year, or if he does, yep. he's kind of really? playing it safe and sticking out wide instead of doing something a bit more risky. I think that's probably part of the issue but there's there's definitely more to it than that because it's like the bad decision making on the power play doesn't have to do with not trusting the goaltenders right like there's there's more to it than that but there's definitely some mental aspects to where he's struggling and i think that as much as like expectations for petrie were astronomical because of the shooting percentage last year and we're used to being him being a play driver like overall it's crazy to say but outside of the incredibly sheltered Chris Weidman and Sammy Niku, Petrie is still the Canadians' top play-driving defenseman this year. Like he's mm-hmm. he's leading in all those categories. It's just nothing is going right for him, and the offensive, like the decision making, is terrible. Like we can all see that. So, but even with that, he's still doing parts of his job to get decent results. So like, it's not a lost cause. Well, there he doesn't have a lot issues. of competition. No, that's true. That's true, too. Although I will say it's kind of ironic that in this like disaster situation where guys are having crises of confidence that Ben Sherrod yeah. is like, whatever, I'll do what I want and having his best season ever. Uh, I mean, that's that's the thing with shooting percentage and defensemen. I think uh, uh, we uh, we summed it up pretty well. Ben Sherrod going on a bender and just like ending up like first among defensemen for goals doesn't make any sense. And it's not that surprising because, uh, well, stats really do make sense offensively for defensemen, I guess. And uh, Petrie hasn't been scoring goal for uh, for a while now. I think he has no uh, no goal in 20 games in the playoffs and no goal this season. So uh, he has not been scoring for uh, for quite a while now. And what I what I'm gonna ask you guys is like how much does he come back to his normal self when Joel Edmondson comes back, or does he even? I, I mean, I, think, I would not hold my breath. Yeah, I I, I think there's something there's some things that Edmondson does that facilitate Petrie. Like he's a quick mm-hmm. decision maker with the puck, uh, but I don't know if it'll be like it's not gonna be an instant fix. Obviously, I think the most surprising thing to me is that like aside from just shooting the lights out, Ben Sherratt's actually had a decent season. And that's why I don't really want to crap on him too much for the terrible play tonight where I I don't even remember. I think it was the the fourth goal for the Penguins where there was a completely not dangerous two-on-two happening. Mm -hmm. And Sherratt, for no reason, just went over and like tried to step up on a Penguins player who Petrie had covered and created essentially a two-on-o. But I don't want to shit on him for that. Like it's just, yeah. he's been well, decent. Yeah, sure. yeah. The the rumors came out that Edmonton was interested in Sherrod and he realized trying that to what he had it. to do to get traded there was to step up on a player unnecessarily. So he was playing three dimensional chess, he just didn't follow along. <laughs> well well, I I think they do trade Sherrod this year, but I mean they would pretty much trade one of their best defensemen, ironically, if they if they do that. Anyway, like how sustainable is that from Sherrod? I don't know. I still would trade him. Uh, and, and well, well, that helps his value too. Uh, and you can get pretty much, I mean, with GMs in this league, they, they do love their, the, the big D-men that lugged up a lot of minutes during the playoffs. So I don't see a scenario in which uh, you do not get a first-round pick in return. Yeah, I saw Friedman was saying that they're expecting a yeah. first round pick for Sherratt. And to me, that's yeah. you make that deal yesterday. 
<laughs> well, what I said on air on TV Aspar is, uh, I would I would try to get creative and try to package maybe Sherrod and Armia because they they would be seen as two guys that can really uh, help a franchise get over the hump uh, during the postseason. They're two big guys that uh, Armia can cycle it down low, can heat up a lot of minutes. Uh, they're they're seen as playoff guys, so they hold a lot of value to uh, GMs in the in the NHL. So if you package them both together, you might get a really solid return, like not only a first round pick, but maybe a good prospect as well. And how I see it is that you have like so much young left shot defensemen uh, coming for the abs in the system. And uh, as for Armia, well, uh, Jesse Ullinen has been really good for Laval for a uh, But well, uh, a second season in the in the AHL now, so I could see him as a, as his replacement. Yeah, you just you got it trade those guys. I, I mean, anybody on this roster can get moved because the, one of the things about how this roster has been built is because the Habs were so confident that they were going to be contending. There really aren't yeah. a lot of removable parts in this group in terms of guys who aren't locked up to long-term deals. It's not like you can just like flip Josh Anderson, for example, uh, yeah. or, or stuff like that if you want to make quick changes. So anybody, if you can, whoever you can strip for parts, whatever, you know, comes off and that you can get drafted value out of you pretty much have to. And I think Sherrod's a perfect example of a player who... Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think the, the stats have been solid for him this year. Obviously, you know, like you said, with the, the shooting, that's not something that I put a lot of stock in. He was one of the worst finishing defensemen in the league last year. Uh, I, I don't think he's going to keep up what he's doing right now. Uh, you know, he's been okay. He's like, he's been good. His, his numbers are solid, like you said. Uh, we'll see how much of that is related to Petrie uh, or, or the people that he's played with uh, when eventually they get separated. Um But, you know, I, again, if you can trade him, if you can trade Armia, as quickly as you can reset this roster, like the, the, the benefit yep. that it has. So we've already talked about the downsides of the Habs having that playoff run last season in terms of what it did for the overall direction of the franchise. Mm -hmm. The upside is yep. that you have all these guys who have playoff uh, abilities now. Yes, you know, the, the, the playoff run, factor. Anybody yes. who was involved with that deep run, no matter how well they played, You know, they were on a, really a deep point. run and, and people were watching them during that playoff run. You know, the, the Penguins enjoyed this, you know, all throughout the past decade where whenever that they would move a player or whenever a player that they uh, would let, let go to free agency, they would always get these big contracts or these big returns specifically because all eyes had been on them and they had played in these deep playoff runs. So, you know, the Habs at least can salvage a little bit of value by, I think, you know, striking while the iron is hot and getting maximum draft pick value for players like Sherrod and, and mm -hmm. So who do you not trade though? Like who is untouchable on this roster? I would say Suzuki, Caulfield. I don't know if you trade Petrie. Uh, he has a no-move clause, so I, I don't think you can. But who is untouchable? I mean, I would say they probably aren't going to move like Brennan Gallagher just because there's yeah. so much left on that contract. I think that's harder for to move, especially Unless in the season. Unless they retain some salary. Yeah, but even then, like I think yeah. that for the organization, I think if Gallagher said he wanted to move, then they would move him. But he's such like the yeah. heart and soul guy that I, I feel like it's just not likely. Um, they could trade Dvorak again. I don't know if I would. I think it'd be the worst time to do it. I you know, mean, like Bergevin is not doing it. You know that. No, but I mean, I don't think Bergevin should be the one handling the deadline, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't think he should that's, be that's around by then. Like, That's another thing. Yeah, the writing's on the wall there. Like at this point, if he hasn't signed, he's not coming back. And why in the world would the organization bring him back? Like it just doesn't make well, sense to me that. That's the thing, though. What is Jeff Molson even doing? We've seen him one time. It was like opening game. Yeah, have a good season, guys. And he's been invisible since then. Like nobody saw him. Well, it's the same as like Vancouver, right? There's no accountability from ownership. They don't know what's going on. They desperately need a president of hockey operations instead of Jeff Molson. Like it doesn't make any sense that he's in that position. And, uh, you know, even if Bergevin himself is not necessarily the problem, like I think yeah. you could make the argument that he's made a lot of good moves in his tenure. Executives rarely make like a difference after they've been around for nine years. Like yeah. your plan should have come to fruition by now. How many more plans do you get to come up with? You know, sure. like just get somebody new in there. The Canadians have the money and the power to do something that 
other teams in the league can't do. Just like throw money at the best guys in the world. Best, not even guys, uh, guys will use guys as unisex, but like best people in the world move mm-hmm. and get some guy, people who are not hockey people necessarily get, sure. get some people from outside the hockey man brain, right? Try to do something different. Try to get back to a point where you're ahead of the curve instead of trying to constantly keep up with people. Just, just to, to get back to the question you asked of like who should be untouchable, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think I, I alluded to this, but like whether they like it or not, most of the people on this roster are untouchable just by virtue of the contracts they've been given. Like you mentioned, you know, a package with 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 Sherrod and, and Armia, you know, and I was thinking, oh, Armia, like that's that's exactly the kind of rental that a lot of teams want. But his contracts are he's, he's got he's got three years left at three point four million. I don't I can't think of any team that's contending right now who can even fit that. You know. Like a team like the Oilers, for example, who in a vacuum would be interested in adding Sherrod, obviously, and Armia, they can't fit that. They can't have a bottom six or making 3.4 million bucks on that roster. Like you said, Christian Dvorak, I think his value is obviously tanked right now. Uh, and I don't think he's as bad as he's shown so far this year, but there's nothing no. you can really do about that. Josh uh-huh. Anderson, that's not a really movable contract. Jonathan Drouin, not really a movable contract. Uh, Brendan Gallagher with the number of years he has left. There's plenty of GMs that would take him, but I don't think that there are a lot of teams that have the space for him that would be willing yeah. to pay the assets the Habs need. That goes for, for Jeff Petrie as well. You know, David Savard, I don't know if there are that many teams that would be interested in that. But the problem with this Habs roster is not just that it's not a competitive team, it's that it was built so much to be a competitive team that there mm-hmm. really not a lot of removable pieces from it. So even if, you know, even if the Habs do decide that they have to rebuild, you know, if Bergevin leaves and, and they strip the whole thing, they really don't have a lot of options in terms of stuff that they can move. So I, I, yeah. I really think this deadline is going to be Sherratt watch and Lekkonen watch. You know, Lekkonen will go to like some team for like a thir- third or fourth round pick or something. And then mm-hmm. Sherratt will go for a first and a prospect probably. There will be a little bidding war going on. And that'll probably be it. And Maybe you know, Kulak. Maybe, Who knows? <laughs> yeah, Kulak will go to you know, the Maple Leafs for a late pick or something like that. We'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, I really think that, you know, there are pretty clear limitations on what exactly can happen yeah. for this team in terms of, you know, what they do moving forward that have been imposed by Bergevin by virtue of him thinking that he's building a winning team and right. certainly not the team that we've seen so far. And that is kind of like the most frustrating part is that most of this roster is locked in until like 2024. So like if you've got hope for anything going forward like you gotta hope that at some point they find ways to move some of these guys out and i don't think like there's any individual player that's the problem it's just a lot of too many of the same guy yeah 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 sure well uh at this point uh, this is so grim that you you only can think about the draft they they still have some good draft capital uh this year too i believe And yeah, they've got some decent is, draft picks, I think. And this is a strong draft that, that is going to be uh, held in Montreal. Uh, well, the thing is with the Canadians, when they add some solid picks in the top 10, uh, most of the time the, the draft was not that strong and they were not in such a good position. Like when they picked Galchenyuk, I don't think Galchenyuk was a, was a bad pick, even uh, in retrospective, but... Their development the draft, was it, terrible. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that we can agree. But the draft itself was not a good draft. So that did not help them. Uh, well, they did draft Sergachev, that was a right pick. So they can make some right picks in the uh, some right pick in the, the top 10. So it will be interesting because they can get a pretty good pick in a draft that seems really, really solid this year. If they don't finish like 11th. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. if yeah. they finish outside that top 10 and lose that yeah, really pick to Arizona. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, they basically made a bet that Nick Suzuki was going to be one of the top centers in the league and that Cole Cockhill is going to be one of the top wingers in the league. That's the only way that this roster makes sense. Yeah. And yeah. Suzuki has been better lately than he was at the start. He still, mm-hmm. I think, is a very strong defensive player. The question will always be until it breaks through is, is what his offensive upside is. And yeah. then Caulfield, obviously, we've seen the growing pains. We've seen that you can't just pencil him in as a 35-goal scorer right off the bat, that there is some work to be done there. 
And that throws, I think, a huge wrench. And, and I think that, you know, when you talk about the rebuild plans and the prospects for that, you know, I, I wonder whether the fact that this roster really doesn't have very much flexibility, whether that kind of alters what the game plan is moving forward in terms of whether this team is even one that can properly rebuild, like whether they can be a true rebuilding team, no matter who's running it with all the people that they have on the roster, including Suzuki and Caulfield and, and all those guys. So, you know, I think that that might even have to open up conversations about, you know, retools and yeah, they're going to read things like that. Just stuff to make this current group work because you know, like it or not, if you're a Habs fan, you're going to have to get used to most of the guys on this roster because you're going to be seeing them for a while. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you can't someone mention uh, that uh, teams would probably be interested in Tapoli. I think he's another guy that you, if you think you're going to be good within the next, like within his contract, you probably yeah. don't want to move him. Cause I think Tapoli is still a very good player, yeah. but yeah. And I guess contract like is really not that bad. Yeah, his know. contract is great value. So I think that you definitely yeah. could move to Foley. It's just harder to move guys with term in season. That's the thing. Like, and if you look sure. at you go to cap friendly right now and you look at like how capped out the average team is, I think this is actually the worst year I've seen for how many teams are capped out. Like it is crazy how high every team's cap hit is. So it's going to be very difficult to move guys, especially with term at the very least, there's no expansion draft looming. So there's a little bit less uncertainty that way. But I think a yep. lot of that, like a lot of the moves that you would have to make to fix the team are going to happen in the off season. Like the draft, the Montreal Canadiens should be the most active team in the league at the draft. Oh, absolutely. But like, uh, like we said, they cannot blow it all up. Like a rebuild is not really in question. Well, they don't even do rebuilds in Montreal anyway. And I don't even like, like total rebuilds anyway, because I mean, for four, for four, four or five years, you can suck and nobody like guarantee nothing guarantees that is going to work. So you suffer for like, and like the, the Sanders are still suffering and what's going to come out of that. We don't even know yet. So yeah, I think like a retool or whatever reset, whatever you call it is going to be like the right path from now on. And, and it's what's going to happen. Well, and considering, you know, again, you already have Suzuki and Caulfield, like those are, yeah. you've chosen those as your guys and maybe you're going to add another franchise player in the draft. Maybe you're not, who knows what's going to happen. Uh, but you know, the timeline really doesn't work out. And I guess the silver lining is that this team was built to be a contender and they stink. So yeah. you don't have to completely blow up your team to, uh, to get high draft picks. You can, you know, just happen to stumble into them. Like the Habs seem to be on track to do it this year. So, you know, I, I, I think I, I agree with the general vibe that a total scorched earth rebuild as, you know, cathartic as it might be to imagine. Yeah. probably just isn't in the cards of this Habs team just based on their timeline of their best young players as well as just the basic realities of the structure of this roster and the salaries that uh, Bergevin has built. Yeah, and I think that the roster situation is a bigger impediment to a full-scale rebuild than the market. I've seen a lot of people, especially in media here and uh, talk about how like the Mon the Montreal market wouldn't handle a rebuild. I I don't buy that at all. I think if you tell really? people what you're doing, they would be on board. I think what, like the Rangers way. Yeah, like I think yeah. if people knew what the plan was, if there was transparency, I think it would be totally fine. You might not sell out every game, but they're not selling out right now. I think the biggest problem with the Montreal Canadiens over the last like 15 years is that we've started to accept middling and hoping for something good in the playoffs and if you don't have a plan to be better than that you're just you're always going to be stuck there and i'm not i don't think they should do like a full tear down and sell every single player like we said it's much more difficult when you have guys stuck with term and it is more difficult to build up from that i mean you look at the buffalo sabers that are still stuck right you have to keep certain guys to move you through that and rebuild quickly i think a situation where you're bad for maybe two years and you trade for a lot of picks and you try to get better very quickly makes more sense for the Montreal Canadiens, but there's going to be some hard decisions that need to be made. Um, before yeah. we go, uh, I don't know if we have any questions from the discord. Doesn't look like it. Just somebody saying sad trombone noises. And yes, that is essentially the season <laughs> in a nutshell. So, uh, not much to do there. I guess uh, first, 
Jack, and then Nick, uh, tell us what you got going on, where everybody can find you, and then we'll tuck her in for the night. Yeah, so you can obviously follow me on Twitter at jfreshhockey. I uh, post far too frequently about hockey analytics, uh, sometimes a little gloomily about the halves, but I think that's pretty par for the course. Uh, you can read my stuff on Elite Prospects, EP Brinkside. Uh, just had a, a big feature with uh, David St. Louis about uh, Alexi Lafreniere. Uh, and then if you like the visualizations that I posted, like the stuff that we alluded to earlier with the new stats from this year, you can subscribe to my Patreon and get full access to all that stuff. So a lot of places to find what I'm doing. Great. Awesome. Nick. Yeah. Um, so I'm a journalist for TVA Spa. So I create content for uh, our website and I'll always, uh, also have this segment on air, uh, every Wednesday on TVA Spa. It's a debate called uh, Les Recrues with uh, Anthony Martineau. So we debate some stuff, uh, on the abs, uh, every Wednesday. So, uh, and, uh, in the next, uh, few weeks, months, uh, I guess, uh, with, uh, how the, the season is going, I'm, I'm going to focus on more on the, the draft and the implications for the, the Canadians. Yeah, I think we're going to be focusing a little bit more on the draft here as well. We're going to, I'm going to tr- try to bring in some prospect gurus and prep uh-huh. for uh, the top 10 picks this year. And maybe the Canadians can make some positivity out of it this year. Although they really failed to do that at the last year's draft, which kind of set the table for this season. <clears throat> so... We'll see what they can do. Thanks for watching Game Over Montreal, everybody, and uh, we'll be back on Saturday night.